0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi everyone, welcome to LSE in this very exciting uh, public lecture hosted by LSE Sociology and based on uh, Dr Louise Ashley's fantastic new book, Highly Discriminating, Why the City Isn't Fair and Diversity Doesn't Work. Uh, My name's Sam Friedman, Uh, I'm a Professor of Sociology here at LSE, and I'm also the Chair for tonight's lecture. Uh, I'm very excited to hear from all our speakers um, tonight, and let me just just introduce them uh, and outline tonight's running order. So first, uh, Dr Louise Ashley will begin outlining the main arguments of her book for about 25 minutes. Louise, for those of you who don't know her already, is Senior Lecturer in Organization Studies uh, at Queen Mary University of London. She specializes in researching diversity and inclusion in large multinational organizations and elite employers um, with a particular focus, as we'll hear about tonight, on social mobility and social class. Uh, And for those who like what they hear, um, I should add Louise's book will be available to buy after the lecture, where she'll also be signing copies. Um, After Louise, we'll then hear two responses to her book that will last about 10 minutes each. First up is David Goodhart, Head of Policy Exchanges, Demography, Immigration and Integration Unit, and one of Britain's most well-known commentators and authors. David is the author of several books, but most notably for tonight, 2017's uh, Sunday Times bestseller, The Road to Somewhere, The New Tribe Shaping British Politics, and 2020's uh, Head, Hand, Heart, the struggle for dignity and status in the 21st century. Uh, After David, we'll then hear from Mark Williams, Professor of Human Resource Management in the School of Business and Management at Queen Mary also. Mark is particularly well-known for his pioneering work exploring the quality of different types of jobs in the UK, which is also the subject of his 2020 book, Mapping Good Work, also um, uh, available, I think, uh, to buy outside tonight, along with David's. After these two responses, I'll give Louise a chance to respond to their comments uh, and then we should have uh, a good half an hour or so to take questions from yourselves. Um, Just before I hand over to Louise to kick off tonight, I just want to say a few brief words about why I think tonight's discussion is so important and why I was so keen to to stage it here at the LSE. Um, As someone who's been researching social mobility for the last decade or so, I've seen the issue really become much more prominent in the sort of diversity and inclusion agendas of many professional employers. Many now collect data on the class backgrounds of their staff, uh, and others even publish their class pay gaps and set targets for increasing the representation of working class origin staff. And in many ways, this feels really encouraging Um, a sign that Britain is perhaps finally beginning to have a frank conversation about class uh, and in the workplace in particular, and also that we are starting to think about and address inequalities that people from working class backgrounds face when trying to make a career in these kinds of elite occupations. Um, But at the same time, I've also become increasingly uneasy about how this kind of social mobility industry has started to concretize, and my own role actually in potentially legitimating its blind spots and restricted focus. I think more specifically, I've become concerned with how this agenda contributes to the fetishisation of certain types of work, work that, as David and Mark have pointed out, perhaps shouldn't be assigned such high value or put on such a pedestal. Uh, and I'm also concerned, I think, by the very narrow focus on equality of opportunity that often acts to obscure how professions uh, and employers are implicated in wider societal patterns of class inequality and uh, Um, and we'll hear more about that. My concerns, I think, in this area have largely been expressed only in kind of fleeting half-thoughts. So what I was really struck by when reading Louise's incredibly rich book was that these were precisely the questions she was grappling with and doing so with extraordinary clarity and incisiveness. So I'm really excited about the chance to hear from Louise tonight and to debate these questions with a panel that may not necessarily agree on the way forward in these areas, but we'll each uh, inevitably articulate a thoughtful and important perspective on what are often divisive and contentious issues. So, without further ado, I think it's time we get going, so please do join me in welcoming Dr. Louise Ashley.
1: Thanks, Sam. Thank you so much for having me here, and thank you so much to everybody for coming tonight. Um, I really appreciate it. So, what I'm going to do over the next 20 minutes or so um, is go... got it. it, is given overview of the points that I make in the book and the argument. The subtitle is, of course, um, why the city isn't fair and why diversity doesn't work. And I want to explain in a bit more detail what I mean when I say the city isn't fair and think about why that matters to all of us. And that provides the framework to help us understand why efforts at diversity and inclusion don't always work and to consider what might work better instead. Now, once I've done that, I'm going to open up the discussion a bit to include some areas that I didn't cover in so much detail in the book. So an underlying critique there, or an underlying theme there, is a critique of the social mobility agenda, which has arguably become the dominant way we talk about class inequalities um, in the UK over the past decade or more. And in the book, I talk mainly about how that agenda has been operationalized in the specific environment of the city and associated problems and dilemmas. But towards the end of my talk, I want to think about this more widely including about how those debates and the language we use around class and social mobility may sometimes re-inscribe moral judgments around class and perhaps contribute to, rather than undermine, unhelpful hierarchies between, say, good and bad jobs. So if we start with some facts and stats as they apply to the city's jobs, um, I'm not gonna spend too long, by the way, on definitions tonight, um, but what I mean here is predominantly front office and or revenue-generating jobs, physically located in the city of London, in sort of leading investment banks or asset management firms, and to a lesser extent, corporate law and accountancy firms. So Sam's brilliant work with Daniel Lawson has of course pointed to a significant pay gap in in these occupations. This is particularly large in the financial services sector, um, the kind of firms which characterize the city. I'm probably gonna get this wrong, Sam, but I think about 17,000 pounds per annum in those organizations. In terms of demographics, um, recent studies by the Bridge Group have found, for example, that over 50% of partners at the city's leading law firms are white, male, and privately educated, another found that 90% of leaders in eight of the city's leading financial service firms were from the most privileged backgrounds, and that compares to about, or just over 30% of the population. We don't have brilliant data for demographics in the city much earlier than that. Um, We need more data really and we don't have it. But studies examining earlier city leaders found that they were also very likely to be privately educated, often at the UK's most elite public schools. Now that might not seem very surprising, but more so as a study in 2014 found that to some extent that remained true even then. So over 60% of leaders in investment banks, according to the Sutton Trust, had also attended private schools, and that compares to about 7% of the population. So as I say, we saw some change over those decades, but um, um, the city was no longer the sort of upper class or even aristocratic place it once was by the kind of 2010s. But many of its so-called top jobs remained dominated by the children of the affluent middle or upper middle class. And what I argue is that that matters, and it matters to everybody in the UK. So one reason for that is purely for fairness. The city offers many of the UK's most remunerated jobs, so who gets them affects the class structure of the whole of the country. Another issue which seems quite pressing right now is an apparent fast track from the city's top jobs into elite politics, and that's a relationship that's developed over many years, that relationship between big finance and and politics particularly, but not only on the right. Now, in addition, many of those political leaders are fairly privileged themselves, in terms of education at least, so over 65% of the current cabinet was privately educated. One implication is that we're governed by a set of people with a very specific and arguably rather narrow set of interests, along with quite narrow social and educational backgrounds. Now, events over the past decade or more, including 2008's catastrophic crash, also suggest the city isn't very safe. And there's clearly a lot of reasons for that, but we do have a fairly homogenous financial and professional elite. And one danger there is, for example, a tendency towards groupthink. So that leads me towards the underlying puzzle that I address in the book. In theory, at least, these demographics would look irrational. And in fact, some of the city's boosters um, historically have denied they exist, and they have tended to prefer and promote or promote a meritocratic narrative, which suggests that anybody can get into the city and succeed if they're sufficiently talented and prepared to work very hard. Now the quote on this slide followed a report I led for the Social Mobility Commission quite a few years ago now, where this journalist denies really that there's any problem and argues that investment banks are fiercely meritocratic, they have no time for petty snobbery. But the question is then why do demographics in its top jobs suggest something rather different and how has that happened? And that's the question that I address in the first half of the book, where I look at why the city isn't fair. As I do so, it'd be re- it would be relatively easy to demonize the city and the people who work there. That's not my intention. The city's own preferred explanation for this is that exclusion can largely be blamed on unconscious bias or affinity bias, which makes exclusion an accident of individual psychology. But my research suggests that misses the point because class and other inequalities are the result of practices and processes which are embedded within systems and structures. So exclusion is a result of habits and norms and traditions and customs. That makes it more complex to address, but also contrary to the business case, maintaining those class inequalities alongside an illusion of meritocracy has offered city elites clear benefits, particularly in their pursuit of legitimacy. So, legitimacy is the key theme in my book probably, and as context here, maintaining legitimacy is vital for any elite group. That's because by definition they have particularly high status and standing. Now, status, like social class, is a rather slippery and subjective concept, but in the city, over the past four decades, people in those top jobs have typically made a great deal of cash. So even during Covid, when wages were stagnating across the UK, their remuneration continued to grow, with partners in some leading law and accountancy firms earning in the millions and investment bankers enjoying the biggest bonus payouts since 2008. So in financial terms, at least, they are superior and any personal group in a superior position needs to justify those special privileges and make sure they seem legitimate so that they can kind of get wider buy-in and consent for their position. Now to explain how that's been achieved in the city over the past four decades, also, I need to introduce a little bit of theory, not too much, I hope, but we need to think generally about how labour markets are made. So in other words, we know there's a hierarchy of occupations in terms of status and income, Uh, the city's top jobs are towards the top of that hierarchy, but how are those hierarchies made and how does that relate to people who are, to who is physically in those jobs. So the common sense answer here is the nature of the work um, determines its value. So in other words, the most complex jobs require the most qualified and talented people. Now, in those instances, we might assume those jobs and the people doing them should be awarded particularly high worth. We might also think that potential workers should be carefully selected for the particular competencies which suggest they're going to do the job well. So that would suggest the need for rigorous screening, the use of academic qualifications as a fairly neutral and objective form of human capital. When all this happens, hiring managers are appointing and promoting on the basis of work values, or in other words, merit. And acting in this way offers a number of, or having the illusion that you're acting in this way, offers a number of symbolic benefits. So if we can maintain a meritocratic reputation, That means it's useful in terms of legitimacy, it's one source of legitimacy. It suggests that the right job has been allocated to the right person in a way that's fair. And where talented people in complex jobs enjoy very high rewards, we can also say those are richly deserved. I will show that's how the city has wanted us to think it appoints and promotes over the last 30, 40 years. In practice, managers have tended to deploy a range of other values as well, or instead. And these are the values which have most closely informed how the city actually hires and promotes. So one set of values is market values, which broadly relates to supply and demand. Now where demand outstrips supply, this tends to raise the value of any resource. Efficient labour markets might match relative supply to relative demand, but this relationship can also be manipulated. Uh, to create an artificial illusion of scarcity in available skills. And this is one good way to generate status and thus generate and justify high fees and high pay. Hiring managers might also point on the basis of people values. In other words, to discriminate between candidates and employees on the basis of factors such as class or ethnicity or sex. Now proponents of the meritocratic ideal suggest that people values no longer play a significant role in recruitment or promotion, precisely because it's irrational to appoint on any basis other than ability and effort. And if we are thinking about technical skills, maybe it is. But there are other benefits, of course, of hiring and promoting in that way, because people tend to lend their own status to the work that they do. So for occupations wishing to generate and justify very high fees, there are clear benefits in appointing people with high status too. And in our society, that's tended to mean white middle-class men. So what I do in the first half of the book is to show how the city has manufactured a meritocratic reputation while in practice continuing to leverage highly exclusive market and people values which have generated status. And as quickly as possible, I'm going to tell you the story of how that has worked. So we need to go back a few steps first to think about this historically. In the first half of the 20th century, the city was a fairly upper class or even aristocratic place, heavily populated by so-called gentlemanly capitalists. They were found in the old merchant banks, which became today's investment banks. Um, they were joined by kind of possibly slightly less posh brokers, um, and also from around the 60s and into the 1970s, so-called barrow boys, so working class men who worked on open outcry trading floors. That's a very brief caricature, but the important point is that those gentlemanly capitalists um, were said to lend their status and their respectability to financial and professional work. From around the late 70s and into the 80s, things started to change, including the nature of the work, which perhaps did become more complex. Banks and other firms started to appoint often highly numerate graduates from elite universities. And as salaries started to increase, fueled by more US banks entering the market, those graduates were also increasingly attracted to this type of work. Now adopting that graduate-only strategy offered both material and symbolic advantages to city banks. One of the latter was to underline that access to the city was now available on the basis of what you knew, not who, and that the increasing rewards which were growing around that time were justified because the city only appointed the very brightest and the best. All of that helped to secure the city's legitimacy, legitimacy, its influence and its power. And while many of those trends were um, kind of already underway, they accelerated after Big Bang and deregulation in 1986. So it's around that time that we saw the origins of the city's myth of merit, and there was no doubt that it also did open up. However, if we fast forward a few years, we see continuity too. So I've already provided some figures, but just to throw in a few more, one recent study of portfolio managers conducted by New Financial found that nearly two-thirds of the industry's leaders went to private school, for example. So there we see that actually exclusivity was sustained alongside this meritocratic myth. Now, in terms of how that's happened, the first explanation is one with which I'm sure most of you will be familiar. So during the 90s and 80, 1980s and beyond, city firms maintained close relationships with elite universities in the UK and elsewhere, for which they appointed the majority of new graduates. And it's certainly true that many of those new entrants were exceedingly clever, often with a great deal of technical ability. But this is also where we start to chip away at the city's so-called the city's meritocratic narrative because it's questionable whether appointing on the basis of so-called work values was in fact impartial or fair. Now in the UK, as in many other places, there's a significant attainment gap based on social class. The children of the middle classes tend to do better in school, not necessarily because they are better, but because they have more uh, resources and support. This means they're more likely to get into those elite universities from which city firms recruit and other equally talented people have little chance of getting in. So while city firms were appointing people with strong qualifications, judged through that wider lens, the decisions they were taking were not, on the other hand, particularly fair. And it's also possible, and it's hinted here on this slide, that not all those new entrants were, in fact, especially brilliant or particularly good. And that's because there are some other things going on as well. So starting first with um, issues of supply and demand. Again, I'm going to trace a very brief history. So during the 1980s and the early 1990s, there was very high demand for new people to enter the city, um, and that maybe did outstrip supply to some extent. One response that firms made was to appoint appoint new new entrants from a marginally more diverse um, set of educational and social backgrounds. And arguably, I think we're in a similar position today, where there seems to be a shortage of talent at entry level. During the late 1990s, though, demand slowed, but city firms remained highly attractive to the growing number of graduates. And these firms cont- continued to receive more applications from qualified candidates than they could possibly appoint. Now, despite the availability of apparently scientific selection techniques, in reality, they had very little idea how to define and identify talent amongst this very large group. So in response, they reverted to type to focus on an elite university degree. The relationship between those degrees and performance on the job was always a little bit uncertain, but qualifications were used as a sign of probable competence in the role based on their previous experience hiring similar types of people. So those new entrants were considered a safe choice. Having to find talent in those very narrow terms, during the 2000s, investment banks and law firms and accountancies struggled with each other to appoint from that small group. And that struggle became framed as the war for talent. But of course, scarcity was based on relative definition, rather than absolute supply. And as such, this was pretty much a phony war. But that in turn had some paradoxical kind of knock-on effects. So on the one hand, it's likely that phony war for talent pushed up salaries for some new entrants. On the other hand, it helped to cement an impression that related skills were somewhat rare, and therefore particularly valuable, thus helping to justify high fees. The the war for talent also encouraged firms to remove recruitment cycles ever earlier in academic careers to snap up candidates from this narrowly defined group. And that put a heavy emphasis on candidates' um, social capital and further reduced the ability of city firms to access talent from more diverse groups. So I want to underline that these processes were not always entirely deliberate or completely rational if technical ability is our primary measure of talent or merit. They could in fact be quite dysfunctional on that basis. And in fact, some studies suggest that the IQ of financial service workers has gone down as their social standing has gone up. But a variety of, other, of cultural and other reasons remain, made sure that those kind of processes persisted nevertheless. And another one of those was because by doing this, they were quite likely to get the right kind of person as well. So that takes us on to people values. Uh, Given difficulties in identifying talent, firms often based recruitment and promotion decisions on stereotypes and fit. And that was often informed by who had historically occupied key roles. So I use corporate finance and trading to illustrate these points, with stereotypes in corporate finance being most closely informed by the old gentlemanly capitalists who populated merchant banks, and trading by the slightly less upper class brokers and working class barrow boys Um, that populated those roles. Now, the numerical dominance of the latter was never that high. It was probably always exaggerated. But these stereotypes have cast a very long historical shadow to influence who is perceived to fit even today. Now, in terms of actual demographics, the blanket approach to elite education as a kind of um, sign of access to these jobs may somewhat even this out. But generally, more technical areas such as trading or those in technology or so-called quants do you see more open to diversity compared to client-facing areas um, instead, particularly when that applies to class and ethnicity, um, less so when it applies to gender, because these remain um, generally very male-dominated spaces. Now, again, exclusion on the basis of stereotypes is not always consciously planned, but it's not always quite the result of unconscious bias either. So, for example, in corporate finance, hiring managers might not appoint or may fail to promote highly qualified candidates who lack appropriate forms of polish, usually on the basis of what their clients might think. So again, while this might overlook technical ability and merit defined in those terms, it makes sense on cultural grounds because people with the right background are more likely to convey authority and expertise which promotes all important trust. And that can be particularly important in areas where the knowledge base is ambiguous, where background, social background and embodied identity acts as a very useful proxy for quality. Now again, this helps to account for the advantages that white middle-class men have experienced in particular types of city jobs and which many continue to enjoy today. So, depending on where we look and how we define the concept, recruitment and promotion in the city is not that meritocratic at all and arguably it never has been. And one implication there is that the exceptional rewards which are enjoyed by those elites can't be justified on that basis. And I will come back to that, or maybe we'll come back to that in the questions. Mm-hmm. Next, though, um, I want to turn very briefly to why diversity doesn't work. So more recently, the focus on diversity agendas has been on social class, but over a much longer period, the city has had a focus on other characteristics, particularly gender, and to a lesser extent, ethnicity. Now, whether we think diversity agendas have worked in this area is partly a question of definition and what we think they should do. But I think it's fair to say that while we've traveled some distance, we have some way to go. Uh, Women and people who are ethnically diverse remain quite seriously underrepresented in senior positions in the city as elsewhere. I argue that slow progress can be explained because diversity and inclusion agendas um, are subject to the same tension I outlined above. In other words, they must balance reputation via an impression of inclusivity and merit against maintaining the exclusivity which generates status. And this explains an extremely incremental effect. Now there's a number of ways in which that happens, not all of which I have time to discuss, but if we apply this um, logic to sex-based inequalities, I would suggest that firms have made sufficient adjustments within existing systems to allow more women to succeed, particularly as they assimilate to dominant norms, um, for example, the provision of alternative working patterns within a culture of very long hours. But they've not made the more fundamental adjustments to structures, which would help many more women reach the top. For example, changing work, working patterns for everybody and making these organisations less greedy for people's time. And they haven't done that, because, uh, or partly because those structural changes might undermine profits, which are themselves a form of symbolic capital or status. So while they want talented people to work for him, they don't want it enough to make the sort of radical changes which would allow something that looks closer to equality of outcomes. Now, whether we think that matters and why is another question. There are some real tensions in this agenda between, for example, equity, freedom and choice. Again, perhaps we'll come back to that. For now, I want to think about the implications for the many young people from working class backgrounds who are encouraged to secure the city's top jobs. So over the past decade, we've seen the growth, as Sam said, of what we call um, a social mobility, or has been called a social mobility industry in the UK. One important part of which is programs designed to support young people from working class backgrounds into these jobs. They're provided with things like mentoring and skills training and work experience. Now that seems positive, and in many ways it is. Over many years, I've interviewed many of these young people who regularly call this sort of support life-changing. And yet for many, their journeys into the city come with psychological costs. So they tell me how they're sold a meritocratic dream, which suggests their class, their gender, their ethnicity will make no difference at all. This is a form of institutionalized dishonesty. It's often met with disillusion and dismay when they discover it's a lie. And this is represented by this quote from Michelle, who said, who told me, what these people have been telling you about diversity is just the corporate crap that everybody vomits from their mouths. Everything they tell you turns out not to be true. Now, many young people like Michelle, who are undoubtedly talented and very hardworking, are caught in the tension that I outlined above. So on the one hand, they're valued for their difference and their talent, um, especially as their presence helps city firms build that meritocratic reputation. On the other, it's really important they don't undermine the status that has been carefully cultivated by those firms. And one result is that they have to balance that tension in their bodies and minds. So to become legitimate city workers, they feel they must assimilate to those dominant norms. For some, um, assimilation is impossible, for most it's exhausting, and that's evidenced by lower retention rates or slower career progression for those who do get in. And I think these problems also account for the significant class pay gap, or help to, in financial service careers. And I argue that unless city firms address and acknowledge those tensions, the young people involved are in danger of becoming pawns in the city's legitimacy game. So pretty much finally, This prompts us to think about what we can do. In the book, I cite research by Alexandra Caleb and Frank Dobbin, um, because it's particularly rigorous um, and useful around what works. They underline that real progress would require significant systemic and structural changes to organizations, things like reducing hierarchy, sharing power, democratizing organizations. And this works best because it can improve intergroup contact and opportunities for networking and help reduce stereotypes leading to better outcomes for underrepresented groups. It could also help us move away from a sort of scarcity mindset in highly competitive organisations so that rewards are more equally shared. However, one problem is that current financial and professional leaders may not feel able to make those changes because exclusionary practices are often often locked in as a result of interactions between highly competitive organisations in the same field. Another is that they might not want to. And this takes me pretty much finally onto those wider concerns around our focus on inequality in class and how we frame related debates. So when it comes to class inequalities, the current focus for political, financial and professional elites has been on how to facilitate upward social mobility. And that is an important goal. But class inequalities within organisations don't arise in isolation. They're at least in part a product of a society that is very unequal in terms of income and wealth. Now, the paradox here is that the very financial and professional elites, often expected to show concern with the class pay gap, for example, are closely implicated in driving those inequalities, particularly through their remuneration packages, but not only that. So we shouldn't forget here that social mobility is less likely in highly unequal countries, of which the UK is one. City leaders may say that's a problem beyond their reach, but we should also remember that it's not just that rich people are rich and poor people are poor. The two are relational. So in other words, some of us um, are rich because other people are poor, so our privilege is the result of other people's poverty. Now, to address this, we would need to make much more radical changes beyond organisations, to share material rewards through redistribution, to remake our economy and society, so that we're no longer in a position where the winners take all. From that perspective, it's no wonder that many leaders in financial and professional firms prefer to talk about class pay gaps and inequalities of career progression because that way they can offer an illusion of change which keeps unfair systems and structures from which they benefit firmly in place. So, um, there's more that organisations can do to facilitate access and career progression for underrepresented groups. I don't think we should stop there. We need to take discussions about class inequalities out of the organisational or cultural sphere and talk about material inequalities and matters of exploitation as well. We need also to think about how uh, discussions around social mobility are framed, um, because while we can rail against unfair and non-meritocratic outcomes, we sometimes also re-inscribe unhelpful ideas and beliefs. So current debates around social mobility end up suggesting that the only ways up that all talented people from working class backgrounds should by definition wish to better themselves. And the notion that you can and should better yourself in the labor market does carry a great deal of moral weight. I'm extremely dubious about any hint that investment bankers, corporate lawyers, or accountants are better than anyone else, or whether, apart from their very high pay, with their long hours and often quite hostile cultures, these are necessarily better jobs. Over the past 40 years or so, along with the processes I've outlined in the book, we have also seen a situation where, in an apparently meritocratic society, jobs associated with cognitive ability have acquired ever more status and pay, while those associated, in David's words, with the heart or the hand, have become progressively undervalued and underpaid. So we need to focus on how certain types of jobs are assigned elite status, on what basis, and how we can rebalance that. So I think the question with which I want to finish is, how can we have both conversations at once? How can we think about facilitating social mobility for those who want it, whilst also keeping our attention on reducing underlying inequalities of income and wealth? How can we reduce hierarchies? How can we redistribute both material and symbolic rewards, including status and prestige? And how can we make sure that all of us have access to good work? So those are some big questions, not all of which I can answer. So on that note, I'm going to pass over mm-hmm. to David mm-hmm. and Mark. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah,
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: Um So,
3: um, yeah, well, I very much agree with um, Louise's final point: this balance of, um, as it were, the kind of traditional focus on on meritocracy along with this idea of actually having a much broader definition of merit. Uh, as Sam mentioned, I've written a book called um, Head, Had Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. And that's essentially what that book is about. It's about um, the fact that we allocate too much reward and status to just one form of, of human aptitude, the, the cognitive analytical intelligence that everybody here um, scores highly on, um, and um, but not everybody does. And yet, uh, you know, other other aptitudes are absolutely essential for the good, you know, for a, for a good society. And one could say that the, the people that Louise has been talking about in the city are a sort of subset of that kind of cognitive elite, um, and. Um, I also agree very much that um, you know, the ideology of meritocracy has been very much sort of instrumentalized to defend um, not just kind of what happens in somewhere like the city of London but the um, um, the sort of the higher status of the of the sort of cognitive class in general um, however, I do have a few um, <laughs> a few. Uh, Qualifications, a few caveats to uh, some of Louise's argument. I think um, I think a lot of it is too pessimistic. Um, I think uh, if you look at these things in historical perspective, then we've made huge meritocratic advances. I think she cherry picks some quite um, some quite pessimistic numbers. I mean, I looked at the 2014 Sutton Trust report that. Um, that Louise uses, and 34% of, I think we're talking about sort of professional people in banking, 34% were privately educated, the people at the top, the the so-called leaders, it was 51%, um, which suggests an improvement over time. Looking at financial services as a whole, it was 37% The more recent intake and 60% among leaders. So I think um, there's, a, there's a pretty strongly positive trend there. Um, we should also remember that 35-40% oh, of people that work in the city are not UK born and bred. They're not UK citizens on the whole. So actually you know, a huge amount of, of what happens there is sort of um, not necessarily relevant to some of this argument. Um, the Bridge Report, which Louise also quotes, found that only 16% of people in financial jobs were privately educated, um, although um, 51% of people in general, not, not just the privately educated, were from the two highest social classes compared to, I think it's about 30, 33 35% for the UK as a whole. I would say I mean I uh, I mean I I wrote a report for Policy Exchange a few years ago called Bittersweet Success about uh, glass ceilings for um, Britain's ethnic minorities at the top of business and the professions. We didn't particularly look at the city uh, in that report, it's true, but uh, but you know this was I don't know six or seven years ago. I mean uh, there was already then and prior to then a huge. Um, stress on neutralising unconscious bias in, in selection, in um, appointment, you're not hiring in your own image. Um, you know, name-blind CVs and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think you know people are aware of these issues and have been trying to trying to up their game for a while. Um, I also think, I mean, the whole sort of question of private school domination. I think there tends to be, I mean, not, not just from, from Louise, perhaps from Sam as well. There tends to be a kind of um, to basically too much pessimism and and not um, not um, 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 you know seeing the glass as very much half empty. Um, there's also this key question of what proportion of the population actually go to private school. The um, Francis Green, who writes the academic, who writes quite a lot of these things, done a recent report for the Institute for Fiscal Studies, in which he found that if you look at the kind of sixth form age, sixteen to nineteen age group, eighteen percent of people in England are privately educated. We always quote this figure of seven percent. It's extremely misleading. Um, You know, two or three years you know, if private schools are anything like, like as good as they, as they crack themselves up to be, then two or three years of a private school ought to give you considerable advantage. Um, so um, the actual figure of privately educated kids, or at least partially privately educated people, which I think includes Louise, um, is much, much higher. Um, and also in the Francis Green paper, he was looking at the benefit that he tried was trying to calculate the benefit that private schools provided um, adjusting for prior attainment and found that it was, you only had, just to cite one figure, you only had a 10% higher chance of getting into an elite university if you'd been privately educated. Now, that's too much still, but that's kind of not, not enormous, is it? Um, and yeah, I mean on, on um, and I think there is this, you know, when we talk about social mobility, we often get, as it were, social mobility in general kind of mixed up with, and obviously they do overlap to some extent, mixed up with the question of the openness of the elite. Um, and I think it is possible to have one without the other. I mean, if you go back and think about Britain in the 1950s and the 1960s, this was a time of enormously expanding general social mobility, partly because of, in John Goldthorpe's famous phrase, much greater room at the top. There was a huge expansion in professional occupations, both in the the private sector, but also partly to do with the expansion of the welfare state, the need for more teachers and university lecturers and medical consultants and so on. Um, So you had a huge expansion in general social mobility at the time, um, but you still had a very, very um, closed elite um, I would like to quote this, that the year after I was born, 1957, Anthony Eden was Prime Minister, and he um, presided over a British cabinet of 18 white, privately educated men, 12 of whom, including Anthony Eden, had been to Eton. Um, you know, that, OK, it would have been different uh, if it had been a Labour cabinet, <coughs> Uh, although there probably still about a third of them have probably been privately educated too, but so you can have quite a closed elite, um, and the city would have been very, very closed in those days, I think, and quite a high level of and possibly the other way around as well. Um, so I think it is worth trying to um, unpack those two things now I mean I mean perhaps slightly more controversially that there, there is the kind of assumption that having a disproportionate number of private school people is not meritocratic. It may not be fair, but it's not necessarily unmeritocratic if they are the best people. And if private school does give you all that advantage, then perhaps they are the best people. They will also, they will come from more affluent families, they will have inherited perhaps both the brains and the connections and the (coughs) opportunities of their parents. Um, You know, intelligence is said to be 50% inherited. Um, So um, we can't completely ignore these factors. Um, Indeed, also, given the very strong human impulse to hand on your advantages to your children, which all people have, even left-wing academics, um, it's remarkable in some ways just how meritocratic we are. (laughs) Um, But I think to return to this point about the kind of the broader sense of of fairness in the distribution of status. I mean, of course we're all meritocrats, even Michael Young was a meritocrat when it comes to getting the right people into the right jobs, particularly um, top jobs, as it were. Nobody wants to be operated on by somebody who's failed their surgery exams. You know, we need to get the right people into the right jobs. Everybody can agree on that. Um, so I think we're all kind of in favour of labour market meritocracy. We're not necessarily in favour of living in a meritocratic society, one in which the clever people get all the good jobs and everybody else feels their contributions are undervalued. Um, so again, I'm going to return to well, the, the, the point that Louise ended on that I will also end on is this, that... While, get you we know we should keep notwithstanding my caveats I mean we should keep up that pressure on as you were traditional the traditional um, pressure to improve um, to make our our society and particularly important institutions like the city of London more open and more meritocratic but at the same time we need a lot of these places and jobs to have less honor to be to be to be uh, grabbing less of the status and reward and, and honour um, and spreading that more, more equitably across other human attitudes. Thank you very much.
4: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do
1: people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out just search for IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event.
5: Uh, Yes I'd first uh, like to congratulate Louise on a a really uh, superb book. Um, So I'm just going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, First one will be just a point of reflection uh, about a certain aspect of the book and then Secondly, I'm gonna ask a couple of questions uh, of Louise and perhaps also questions for for wider discussion. So the first, uh, the kind of point of reflection is uh, really taking to task this idea um, that these are top jobs, these city jobs, are they really top jobs? Um, And to me, top jobs uh, should be the top of some ranking um, of job quality measured in a, an objective way according to some evidence-based criteria. Um, and for those of you who aren't really initiated into this concept of, of job quality, job quality is, uh, is now quite a relatively formalized concept in the social sciences. Um, there's a good degree of convergence of what job quality is according to you know, various policy organizations, the Welsh Government, Scottish Government. When they call it fair work, and then the UK national government has its own kind of definition of what a good job is. And um, supranational organisations like the OECD and EU also have um, their own definitions, which converge a great deal. There's quite a lot of overlap over what a good job is. And uh, without going too much detail about about what they actually say, uh, the key idea is that a good job is not just one that pays well and, and is is secure of course that really matters uh, but also all the other things that uh, h- how our work affects uh, or hinders our helps or hinders our, our well-being uh, such as the, the nature of the job tasks uh, how the work is organized uh, the physical environment and some definitions also include things like the social side of work as well and these are all quantitatively measured um, so before coming here I couldn't resist I had to look up how these finance uh, occupations compare uh, on these uh, dimensions. And where possible, I tried to confine the analysis to London to try and keep it to the city. Of course, it's quite hard to do it because of sample sizes from sample surveys, it gets a bit small um, across various data sets. And for those of you, and this is unpublished analysis, so don't quote me on it, but uh, for those who are really interested, In in it, the datasets are the Skills and Employment Surveys and the CIPD's UK Working Life Surveys. So how do these finance occupations look in terms of their job quality? Well, firstly, in terms of the the nature of their tasks, um, these jobs, and, and I should also add that these surveys are filled out by people doing these jobs. So these are people doing these jobs, reporting back on what their jobs are like. So in terms of the nature of the task, these jobs don't involve particularly challenging tasks, they're about average in terms of kind of skill use um, that people report they use in their job. There's only about an average amount of mastery, there's only about an average amount of continuous learning involved in these jobs. Um, in terms of the work, so very average, so in terms of work organisation, um, this is actually where they do quite poorly, uh, certainly relative to other managerial and professional type occupations. So um, these finance occupations are, are more routine. They involve more short and repetitive tasks than the average job. They mm. are more controlled than the average job. So these, the, these are based on items asking people um, the amount of control you have over the tasks you do, how hard you work, the order you do your tasks, uh, the quality standards you work towards, and, and things like that. So they're actually quite repetitive regimented jobs relative to the average, and especially so when you compare it to manager and professional jobs. Well, why does this matter? Well, uh, the scoring poorly in these kind of dimensions is, is associated with poor health and uh, physical, mental and well-being. So unsurprisingly, as Louise reports in her book, people in finance jobs uh, are therefore less satisfied with their jobs because uh, these sorts of intrinsic aspects of job policy are really what make us uh, like our jobs, and they, they kind of do average or, or a bit worse in them. Um, we can look further at other aspects Works, work. So, uh, so uh, you may be familiar with uh, David Graeber did a book on bullshit jobs, which was largely based around s- surveys of this kind, which asked amongst uh, you know, jobs that are kind of... The idea jobs that are pointless and have served no social purpose. and largely derived empirically anyway from a survey item asking people uh, to what extent they agree that their job makes a useful contribution uh, to society and so on th- these kind of measures again finance jobs don't do particularly well so pe- people in, in these jobs report that their jobs don't really make a meaningful contribution to the world as much as the average so of course there are jobs and all these dimensions that are much much worse than um, then finance jobs. So, uh, from a job quality perspective, then city jobs may not necessarily be top jobs, if if that's what you care about. But certainly, from a, a social class perspective, which is the perspective Louise was using in her book, where occupations are classified according to their employment relations. So, broadly speaking, the degree of economic advantage and disadvantage a job confers onto the incumbent. Of course, city jobs are amongst the best they're They're in the top few percent of of the earnings distribution. and uh, I would argue then for for Louise's purpose of her book, uh, this would be the correct way to think about city jobs uh, purely in terms of the advantage that would they then confer on to the offspring of people doing those jobs. So even if you accept in in terms of quality of outcomes that perhaps well-being might be more important than personal wealth. Um, you would rather be in the situation, I think, of having a mundane, boring job that's very well paid to give your children a better chance than if you are in a moderately pay- paying, but say very interesting or useful job. Um, I don't think that confers much advantage onto your offspring. So from this equality of opportunity perspective, then um, these jobs, of course, are very good. Uh, so I had a couple of questions for Louise. So one was just based upon what I was talking about in terms of kind of potential for well-being, really, that's, and I suppose things like the financial crisis probably haven't done the city a great deal of favours in terms of their, their reputation as a place to work as a, for a, a viable career. And I wonder if maybe this image problem may have impacted different people from different backgrounds differently and affecting who ends up going to apply and work there. Then I just also had another question, which was uh, one of the good things about uh, Louise's book, you should obviously go and read it, that I, I particularly enjoyed was the HR side, so she talks to a lot of HR managers who are the kind of socially minded people in organisations trying to push the, the diversity agenda amongst other things. And. Uh, they don't get very far, I think, is one of the, the themes in the book. And so the, my final question is then, uh, given this, should family background be a protected characteristic like it is in many European countries? Okay, thanks.
0: Okay, um, fantastic uh, interventions. Thank you both. Thank you Mark. Louise, do you want to just... Um Yeah, maybe respond to to some of the comments there, whichever ones strike you as important to respond to.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I'll do them in order, I guess. So David's point. um, Well, no one's ever called me pessimistic before, except they have (laughs) quite quite a lot of the time. So I'll take that on the chin. Maybe I am a little bit pessimistic. But I read something the other day that said um, an impatient pragmatist. I think I might be an impatient pragmatist. I think that works. Um, On those figures, did I cherry pick Mm, possibly a little bit, but I think that if you look at those figures, they do show a definite trend that coming from a more privileged background offers you quite significant advantages in the in the city jobs. I think if we compare what the figures look like on a- entry compared to what they look for, like further on in careers, I think one problem is we don't have brilliant data and some of this data isn't amazingly accurate but one is that i think that, that would probably suggest if anything that the advantages advantages on entry become cumulative over time so people who come in from more privileged backgrounds probably experience numerous advantages on their on their way upwards and that would help to account for why there's more of them and more senior positions so i don't think it's necessarily that the situation during the kind of t- 2000s and 2010s was getting significantly better if anything i think it was probably getting worse But I think that those advantages were helping certain people up the career ladder and I think Sam that would probably be supported by your your data on the class pay gap so maybe you can come in on that um, in a minute. On the question of whether it's unmeritocratic, one of the problems with merit as a term, as a concept is it can mean absolutely anything really. And so one of the issues is it tends to mean whatever the person providing the definition wants it to mean. And we know in the city that merit will normally relate to the kind of characteristics of people who are already at the top. So in that sense, merit is so mutable, it's almost useless as a kind of meaningful concept within these jobs, which is kind of one thing that I I tried to kind of get across in the book. Um, I mean, of course, if we're thinking of merit as somebody who can generate an awful lot of money, themselves and their employers within the city, then that might not relate only to technical ability in pure terms. It may well relate to who you know, what kind of social capital you have. Um, we could call that merit, but it wouldn't necessarily be fair. So my argument would be that, yes, perhaps those people can generate lots of money for themselves and others. Perhaps they can get to the top of the city, but that doesn't mean that the money that they're earning is necessarily more richly deserved and justifiable than other people who have merit defined in completely different terms um, in apparently... Low skilled jobs, although I would reject that term obviously. One final point on that you mentioned surgery, which is a really interesting one because yes, we would certainly hope that our surgeon is the right person for the right job, but we would also help the medical profession or hope the medical profession is meritocratic on that basis. And in some ways, we'd want the medical profession to be the most meritocratic of, oh, I talk, meritocratic of all professions because they are leaving, uh, dealing with life and death. Um, The reality is that the medical profession isn't meritocratic at all. There is almost nothing meritocratic about medicine if you look into it in detail. It is hugely determined by social capital, nepotism, cultural capital. So of course you have to have strong qualifications to get in, but in order to get into the most prestigious um, specialty positions, of which surgery is one, Then you need to have all sorts of other forms of social and cultural capital that are not really related to technical ability. And one of the primary um, things you need to be to become a surgeon is male. So um, (laughs) if if masculinity counts as merit, then men have have loads of it in that role. But um, I I would be quite dubious about that.
3: Surely that's changing very, very fast. I mean, well, perhaps not in certain ways. It's certainly changing in, in kind of. The upper regions of medicine in general women are roaring up the, uh, the ladder um also about what about 40 percent of uh, uk consultants are south asian i mean it's, it's been very yeah ethnicity open. yeah ethnicity um, is,
1: is absolutely the medical profession is diversifying on, on the basis of ethnicity if you then look at intersections between ethnicity and social class i'm not sure it would give you quite such a depending on how you look at it positive picture but i would also say that I talked about occupational segregation in the book and just now, and how the status and identity of the work um, borrows from the identity of, work of the people doing it. And I think medicine is one of the classic professions in that, in that surgery has this sort of heroic myth around it, of the kind of tough male surgeon who can deal with bodies, and that lends it its status. So surgery is not higher status because there's something magical or mystical about it, which makes it more prestigious than other specialisms it's associated with white men, and that's what's offered surgery, is status. If we look at general practice, which is heavily feminized, I would also argue that we've seen a significant loss of status applied to general practice, and I don't think that those two things are remotely unrelated. So, dubious about the use of merit as a sort of um, signal of anything, really, apart from the power of the person who's providing the definition, generally. So I'll come on to that. I'm sure you've got other points Do you want to come back on that one. Um, and Mark, thank you so much for your points. too. Um, yes, I think financial services the city does have certain image problems. I think particularly after the financial crisis, um, obviously it suffered a particular image problem. One of the interesting things that did, or city leaders did, um, after the crisis, was to frantically try and rebuild their reputation for merit as an illustration of their professionalism. We also saw the scarcity logic being wheeled out again, so when bankers were threatened with with more regulation. Bob Diamond, I think, was um, particularly out there saying that we can't possibly do that because there aren't enough talented people and then all go and live in, I don't know, Luxembourg or (laughs) wherever they would go and live. Um, And therefore that scarcity mindset was used again to help uh, justify the privileges that city bankers would continue to enjoy. More recently, when I talk to HR managers in the city, they often tell me that new cohorts coming in have different values of people further up the, um, the, the kind of career hierarchy. And I'm sort of dubious about those kind of cohorts effects. I kind of think probably it's more likely that the nature of the changes, the work has changed and these jobs are increasingly boring, they're increasingly routine, they're increasingly punishing working hours. And so people are more likely not to want to do them for that reason. I'm not sure though whether there are very marked cohort effects in that in terms of people two decades ago want Totally different things from people now. I don't know how much data we've got from that um, on that. On HR managers, uh, sorry on the, the issue of class as a protected characteristic, I definitely do think class should be a protected characteristic. It seems absolutely crazy, and it's not in many ways. so I do think it should be, but I think given our current um, political situation, I think the likelihood of that happening anytime soon is very, very low. But we can keep saying it should happen. So thank you, thanks thank so much. much. Thank you.
0: um Okay, so we are running perfectly to time, uh, and have now a good half an hour to hear from you. So, uh, I think there are roaming mics. Yep. So, who would like to ask what, anyone on the panel a question? Yep.
4: Marta, there.
0: Um, Orange shirt. Thank you so much, Louise. I found
4: this. Your talk very uh, fascinating, in particular, in particular I found fascinating how you linked issues of legitimacy as related to meritocracy uh, with uh, social mobility in the financial industry. And I was wondering if you could clarify um, um, whether there is any difference in uh, st- status-seeking practices between uh, organizations and individuals. And because you talked about the individuals, but I was wondering whether your organizations and uh, financial organizations also seek status consciously. And if it's not a conscious act, um, could your argument of meritocratic inequalities be applied to other elite sectors as well, and reflecting broader patterns of inequalities in access to elite jobs? So yeah, I was wondering, um, how does your case study is unique compared to? Like other cases of elite uh, access to uh, high-paying jobs. Thank you. So we just go yeah, go, yeah, that, thank so. you. Thank you so much for that question.
1: It, it's oh gosh, it's a really difficult one. So I think <laughs> I think. Are you saying do individuals and institutions, or organisations, look for status in the same ways? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, oh gosh, that's such a good question. I need to think about it. I think there's a certain circularity um, in that. So what I mean by that is that I think that traditionally graduates from high status um, or elite universities look for jobs that will also give them high status. So there's a sort of um, interconnection between the two. So a lot of the HR managers and others that I've talked to in the city have said that... um, that they they need to keep this kind of circularity going because if they start recruiting from non-elite universities, that will make graduates from the elite universities less attracted to the roles because they will see them as declining in status. They want to be in jobs with peers with similar high status to their own because that kind of fulfills a, per, a particular self-image for them. So there's all sorts of ways that these kind of these these happen in in cycles and relate to each other. Um, the question of this being a conscious act is so hard because I think as sociologists we struggle quite a lot with kind of working out what is conscious and what is not and at what levels of consciousness these kind of practices get carried out. So I've tried to explain in the book that kind of institutionally some of these things are conscious but with unintended effects. So the way that I explained that, I, I talked about it briefly just now, is that when hiring managers are appointed on the basis of people values, that does offer these firms, it has the, functional, the function, if you like, of offering their firms status. But I don't think when they're doing that, that kind of collective project is in the forefront of their mind. I think it's informed by things that are more immediate, like thinking we can't appoint someone with the wrong accent because our clients won't trust them. And when lots of hiring managers think the same thing, that adds up to a collective um, purpose, they're sort of tacitly brought in to the collective objectives of the organisations but they're not consciously thinking that on an everyday level as they're enacting these kind of like institutionalised um, practices. In terms of very quickly whether it applies to other elite jobs, I think so. I think some of these practices are particularly acute in the city but I would also argue, as i just hinted at, that for example, if we were to look at medicine as an elite profession, we find many of the same sorts of things going on. And in some ways, that that profession, as I said, is, is worse in, in many, particularly because the, the, these practices are completely naturalized within medicine and they're becoming a little bit less so in the city, I would argue. So I hope that answers your question, thank you so much.
0: I'll just, I'll just add to that. I think there's synergies with my own work about sort of areas of elite work where there's particular sort of heightened knowledge ambiguity so areas where sort of the notion of what it is to be to be good at your job is particularly sort of contested or ambiguous i think that's where you see in particular these these types of uh class inequalities okay um let's perhaps take a couple this time so second row pat and then um gentleman in the same row there
2: good evening um, so, Pat McGovern, Department of Sociology. Uh, delighted to see the book arrive. I've been following your work for several years. It's a great tradition of work in British sociology, so glad it's alive and well. Um, given the concern with uh, uh, change and moving towards a more meritocratic model, do you have a theory of change? Because from what I remember of organizational theory, change doesn't occur unless there is an external shock it certainly doesn't persist so why are we seeing these changes you might say they're still class-based they're still elite schools but there's more women appearing more people from minorities appearing in these occupations is it about legislation or is it uh more room at the top is there an expansion in the finance industry um or is it legal cases that put in the challenge in organizations who didn't have to uh, change their HR practices? Or picking up on Mark's point, might it be that this work is no longer so attractive and people from those elite backgrounds are moving into other fields?
0: Okay, let's take
6: one more. So gentlemen in the same row, yeah. it's uh, yeah thanks louise so uh, I, i'm an ex-colleague of louise when she was at royal holloway so there's a little royal holloway gang here so <laughs> please come back um no um so i've obviously been following louise's work as well i haven't read the book yet but that's uh, on the agenda uh, just 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 a couple of observations really one is following on from pat's point about change Um, You talk about the city, it's a geographical location, it's like an industrial district, but it it has all those features of an industrial district. But uh, there's a sense in which you're talking about a homogenous group, um, and one would think that when it's it's been through major changes, the Americanization and the whole kind of Big Bang... Uh, and as was pointed out by um, David the imp- lots and lots of international companies are operating there um, and one would think that having a, not just a, an upper class background but maybe some language faci- facility uh, might be useful um, so uh, change within a, a, a sector or an industry is often driven by different firms, some bringing in different practices and maybe their others are following them, there are leaders and followers. So, uh, talking about the city in the way that you are doing, I mean, again, you may well expand on this in the book, and I'm, I'm doing a false, false uh, characteristic. Uh, it, it's kind of creating a, a sense of a standard rather than looking for points of conflict, points of difference, leading firms, new firms, new ways of doing things. So, is there any sense of... Uh, the agency of the organization being an actor and then the other point if i 'm allowed two questions would be um, I used to teach engineers at Birmingham University I was teaching them management and they were an elite group of engineers and I was hoping they're all going to go and do engineering but they all wanted to go and work in the city this was part of the the drift of the the brains the technical brains into the city um, but Many of them were still engineers. They were kind of nerdy, and uh, I don't know how much social capital they had, but they were kind of, you know, I've been working on engineers for a long time. They're a particular funny group of people, really, but what what excites them is not the same as, uh, you know, kind of going to the opera or whatever. So um, is there a subculture? Did you look at any subcultures within the city? So they may also be... Uh, opportunities for change, or just more fragmentation of culture uh, as the city diversifies. So, two bigger questions. I'm sorry, Louise. But yeah, mm-hmm. Thank
4: you. you
1: I go? um, yeah. oh, okay. Um, gosh, th- thank you for both those questions. So, in terms of a the theory of change, um, no, I don't have a theory of change. I would come up with that. I can't say that straight away. Um, in terms of moving towards meritocracy, though, as, as if that's our goal. One of the things I would say is that um, the city will never be meritocratic in the terms where it's defined by ability and effort in those very neutral and impartial terms. I don't think these jobs can become meritocratic on those terms for all the reasons that I've explained. One of them being that much of this work is quite heavily relationship-based, for example, and it's very difficult to make that kind of work entirely meritocratic so although I think we can strive towards making it more fair, I don't think we can make it meritocratic. And that's important because that means that I don't think we can justify exceptional rewards on that basis. I just don't think they can be justified um, at all, really, um, in some ways. So that's that's part of it. In terms of what might drive change, um, I think we know um, from the kind of occupational segregation literature, um, and also maybe more the sociology of professions and sociology of work, that. Um, Often, occupations and organisations become more open to diverse people at the very point that their rewards, material and symbolic, are diminishing. So, not to be accused of being, I'm going to be very pessimistic again, <laughs> but I do think, in some ways, um, that does offer more um, options for diversity and for change. And I do think it's true in some parts of the city that, not, not just material rewards, but to some extent, some of those symbolic rewards, including whether or not these actually represent good jobs, is starting to go down and that might be the moment at which someone diversify. but it's likely to set in train a sort of um, vicious cycle where the more they diversify the more they lose their status and then actually in the end that will get the pay will catch up with that and pay will end up going down and the more privileged groups will end up in kind of I don't know tech or or fintech is the one that a lot of people talk about now is kind of pulling in those more privileged kind of graduates so if I'm more pessimistic I think that's likely to happen more generally I do think legislation and regulation matter, which is why I think social class should be a protected characteristic. I do think reputation matters, so I think reputation drives incremental change, but it's better than no change, I suppose, in some ways. But fundamentally, in a sort of utopian world, I think the biggest change would be is if we just made society and organisations much more egalitarian, much flatter, reduce those hierarchies. We had this sort of incredibly competitive world. Um, in organisations and, and more widely than that where we had these sort of very scarce rewards at the top that we are all frantically scrabbling over which goes back to the kind of making sure that our children don't lose out um, in that race and I often say and I agree with you David that this agenda makes hypocrites of all of us because of course we can go on about meritocracy while also making sure that our children don't lose out in that race to the extent that we can. That is a clear hypocrisy, and I'm guilty of it myself. Although my children actually suffer from some kind of benign neglect most of the time, so <laughs> I don't know whether I should confer that. Louise, can I, them.
0: can I just yeah. intervene abuse abuse, yeah, abuse, abuse, abuse my chair yeah, here? Just to, just to ask on that precise point, because I, I was fascinated by that, and I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about what what's a tangible step or an example of that the hierarchitization of, of an organisation. That do you think sort of a realistic way towards that? I mean, yes, it's an egalit- it's a sort of utopian principle that you that you, but, but, but how do you see that actually happening? And do you see examples of that 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 kind of are, are promising in this way?
1: Yeah. Um... So I suppose the obvious one would be to think of pay differentials which in many occupations, many organisations are gigantic between the very highest paid people at the very top, the kind of CEOs and the average person, so kind of reducing those pay differentials would be one way to to approach that, but I've also seen organisations, and actually I think there are some asset managers doing this, where when they would have one manager, they've now made that two, so they've flattened structures and increased the numbers of people doing those particular jobs. Because the idea being, I think, that once you take out that extreme competition, that extreme hierarchy, that can kind of, kind of scramble for those top jobs which seem scarce, mm. you then get a more kind of inclusive environment um, because that scarcity, scarcity mindset doesn't really kind of help anybody. And it's interesting because I think we have it in academia as well. And I think it's particularly acute. In fact, some of the problems I've talked about today, I think are particularly acute in academia. Um, and we're much better at diagnosing other people than dealing with that ourselves. So um, those are the kinds of things that I think can work, and they are possible, they are doable, it's just whether organisations do them. So on Chris's point, that comes onto the similarity, I'll be very quick on this one. Um, uh, Yes, there are sub-pockets within the city where there are different cultures, different demographics. It relates in part to Sam's point on ambiguity of work, so where work is more ambiguous, where the knowledge base is more ambiguous, we tend to be more homogenous on the base of the class, other areas are more diverse. But there's also an awful lot of institutional isomorphism going on in the city, and that limits the pace of change. So most organisations don't want to look different from each other. They want to look as close as possible to each other as they can if they're within the same field. And that means that they have a very strong tendency to adopt practices particularly around diversity, which are totally ineffective, but largely legitimate. And they do that because their competitors have adopted them and unconscious bias training would be one of the absolute Mm. classics of that um i don't know if that fully answers your question
0: okay some more questions okay yeah gentleman here in the front row and then
7: lady in the middle there thank you very oh okay thank you very much um i have only like i'm from msc sociology and i've studied sociology just a few years but um i was wondering like given the, given the value change theory of Ingelhart. I was wondering like I, if if that if that's applied to class, then the poor the more people m- like poor people might be like seeking for like financial reward. And then if you are from well family you are already like kind of most satisfied much matur- in terms of material like satisfaction. And I found it kind of contra- contradicting that like in the financial sector, or like in the city jobs, that um, uh, the the most well of people are concentrated. And I was wondering what do you what do you think of it. Thank you. And
0: then, yeah, in the middle. I the glasses.
1: Um, so no, thank you very much for this discussion. Really interesting debates. Love your book and. Great to meet you in, in person. So, I'm Amber Joshi, work, f- work for HSBC in diversity and inclusion. So, you're talking to a HR manager. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that are uh, interesting around meritocracy, um, if we didn't have meritocracy, then I'm interested as a global organization, how would you then define talent? And then, how would you put the infrastructure and the ecosystem in place then to pull that talent um, up? Because I'm very much, we're very much early on in our social mobility journey. Um, and we want to put the right systems in place to bring talent through the, our organization. I'm interested to understand you know, what your thoughts around the tactical interventions we can put in place. Thank
2: you.
0: Louise, right. do you want
6: to start? And then we'll, we can. Yeah, because um, I, so,
0: um, um, yeah.
1: Um, thanks again for those questions. I, I think if I understood you and tell me if I got this wrong, were you suggesting that it seems Odd that the city would be so populated by people from more wealthy backgrounds, because they've already sort of satisfied their needs for money and cash. Whereas you think that people from less um, affluent backgrounds would be working harder to achieve those. Is, is that a, uh, yeah, yeah? I think it's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. However, I think um, people who come from more affluent backgrounds work quite hard to maintain that, don't they? And. And to some extent, that can be maintained by kind of inheriting family wealth. But I think that's more likely for for those who are very wealthy. And I think that many people from those more affluent backgrounds want to maintain the same sort of income that perhaps they have enjoyed growing up from their own family. So I don't, I actually think that can be a motivator in the sense that people will fight quite hard and their parents will fight quite hard on their behalf to ensure that they don't move downwards in terms of income and wealth. And that's not always true. That's a massive generalization, isn't it? But sometimes it is. And then I think it's interesting because often part of the business case for city firms to diversify on the basis of social background is this notion that people from less affluent backgrounds, from poor backgrounds, will be um, more hungry success, they'll fight harder, they'll work harder, and that's really great, and they want those sorts of people. And on one hand, I can think, okay, maybe that's all right. but on another, I think it's quite an exploitative um, discourse, because what they're really saying is, in this incredibly long hours culture, those people will devote everything to work, doesn't matter if they burn out, doesn't matter what happens to them, doesn't matter what happens to their mental health, we can kind of put them to work, because they're so desperate for success, that that will kind of be okay, and I'm, I'm a little bit dubious about that argument, because I think it has some ethical implications as well. And I don't even know if it's always entirely true. Does anyone else want to come in on that?
3: (laughs) Um, Not on that, but... um, (laughs) You've you've made this point, uh, both of you have made this point, about um, social class being a protected characteristic. Um, Now, I think this is a very, very um, difficult idea to translate into practice. I mean, protected characteristics are, are basically pretty clear. You know, you're white or you're black or you're Asian, you're a man or a woman, you're disabled or you're not disabled, you're gay or you're not gay, you're old or you're not old. Social class is an incredibly fuzzy concept. So how are you going to decide, you know, who is... And, and, in, and in what, in where would people be protected? I'm interested, um, you said that, this functions in lots of European countries. Um, h- how does it work there?
5: Well, I th- I just know that it is uh, a protected so I don't know uh, exactly how it works, but it has different names in different countries. Sometimes I call it social status. Um, sometimes it is connected with ethnicity as well. Um, but well, I think the only way you could do it really would be to try and do it as best uh, objectively, because even things like ethnicity is kind of um, tricky, and the Office of National Statistics had to do a lot of work to come up with the categories in the census and things like that, and so I would have thought you could do something along those lines, perhaps.
3: Well, yeah, race is a protected characteristic. And interestingly, by the way, um, the one person who has publicly proposed this, you might be surprised, is Liz Truss Mm -hmm. when she was in charge of Equalities. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm speechless on that, yeah. <laughs> where do I go from there? Yeah. Um, do, you, do you
0: want me, to, you want me to? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think there's a... I th- uh, just to say on the on the social class protected characteristic, it's, so it, I don't think anyone would, would sort of pretend that it's not an incredibly complex thing to make a protected characteristic. And there would be lots of decisions that would have to be made, um, but you know, ten years ago, when I started doing work with organizations, you had exactly that barrier to the, even starting the conversation well but we can 't measure this and what you've ha- what you have over time is is I think people ca- kind of understanding that the imperfection of a measure but the, the importance of the of the principle and then making decisions and sort of um, and living with those decisions around the operationalization of the categories. And so I think it's surmountable. It's, it's, it's never going to be uncontroversial in its measurement. Um, but I think, as Mark mentioned, I, I think there's, 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 there's difficulties in lots of the other protected characteristics, and it would be an incredibly powerful symbolic move. Louise, do you want to come back on the, the second question?
1: Yeah, yeah, oh gosh, not really, because it's so difficult. <laughs> um, thank you for ask, yeah, asking me. I think those tactical measures around what we do, is I think we can try and move some distance closer to having a slightly more objective measure of, of talent and what that means, and we can look at things that we know aren't relevant um, around that. So we know, for example, that accent is not even remotely relevant to your technical ability. So we can have conversations around that and make tactical moves and and try and make sure that we define talent um, more more kind of accurately in that way. I think there is some level of formalization that we can do um, in both recruitment and promotion. So we often talk about, and Sam has talked about, this kind of formalizing the informal, so try and reduce all those informal mechanisms within organizations which help certain people get ahead. And we've tried that with gender-based inequalities, and we've got some distance, but not all the way, of course. But we have made some changes, and one of the things that um, research does show that actually more HR involvement in recruitment and promotion decisions can be really, really helpful in that formalisation. And one of the things I often see in my interviews is ways in which hiring managers will seek to evade that HR involvement, so the kind of processes and practices that are put into place to try and make sure that we see more of a formalisation. Around hiring and promotion so things like wash up committees after um, interview panels to make sure that we're kind of talking about who actually was best as opposed to who we like the most or whatever kind of have HR involved there and then people will leave that meeting and then make their own decisions and, and then back justify them when they go through so the more that that can sort of be prevented I do think the better towards those incremental changes but I still do think and this and help you in your tactical role every day but I do think we we need to have two conversations at once, try and move towards something that looks a little bit more meritocratic however defined but also at the wider level acknowledging that's not going to happen we're never going to completely get there and therefore we need to look at society as a whole and really not use those efforts to make organisations more meritocratic as a way not to talk about those much wider inequalities of income and wealth because we need to do both And, and my worry in the book is that as I say that we kind of made these efforts at social mobility and diversity and inclusion as a way to legitimize those wider inequalities as opposed to address them but that that's outside kind of an organizational lens i guess
0: and just to follow up on that i mean i think one way to sell that in organization and it? it's it's a hard sell i imagine in organizations like hsbc but there's a fairly obvious connection between for example very high pay and social mobility for the next generation, right? If you're if you if you have incredibly high pay inequality in a society, you're setting up profound inequalities of opportunity in the starting points of the next generation. Um, and so I think that's you know, as someone who's very much been involved in trying to think about these very small incremental type organizational changes, which I think are worthwhile, I think Louise's provocation is really important that actually there has to be this conversation alongside that in those corporate discourses that also are, 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 is kind of clear headed about the relationship between this this and these wider processes of, of inequality. That's a hard sell, I know, organizationally, based on the conversations I've had with people in your position, even when there's the will uh, of, of, of of individuals and resources and such like, is people at the top of my, uh, that's not a message necessarily they want to hear. Either of you want to come in on on those sort of questions
5: well, I suppose you have the you know the class pay gap reporting might be an avenue worth exploring. Um, you have um, I don't know much about the effects of that, but certainly with gender pay gap reporting as of course you all know about uh, probably uh, responsible for, for doing that. Uh, all large organisations have to report their gender pay gaps since 2018 in the UK, um, and the in, sort of uh, initial evidence so far shows that actually it has possibly reduced the gender pay gap very slightly. So. It could be uh, an avenue worth exploring. But of course it comes back to the, how do you measure these things? And I don't think that will ever be settled, especially with something as slippery as social class, where I'm sure most people would see it as probably as some kind of identity characteristic. You see in surveys, like the British Social Attitude surveys, uh, all these people saying, oh, I'm working class, but they're uh, you know, in these very, very managerial professional <laughs> occupations and I think that will always be the perennial issue.
3: There are massive distinctions here, aren't there? I mean and we talk about the city in, in general, but I mean it, it's a completely different set of qualities required from in, from an investment banker um, where they will require much more kind of soft skills and where you know pr- a privileged background may be some benefit, compared to a currency trader yeah. where you know um, and there are lots of jobs in the city that are actually closer to currency trader than they are to investment banker um, so your social class background not of any great utility to you. But, I mean just you know all these companies are incredibly competitive and profit driven and they they think they're doing their best to get the right people into the right jobs as I'm sure you're trying to do with HSBC. Um, but um, I mean in an ideal world you'd almost flip the I mean the, the more interesting and enjoyable the job, the more judgment you can have. The more you're in that, I think, is it uh, Brown and Louder talk about uh, digital Taylorism, They say only about ten or fifteen percent of jobs, in most of these big organisations, actually have any autonomy and, and judgment. But actually, if you have a job with lots of autonomy and judgment, it's quite enjoyable. You should get paid less if you have an enjoyable job, and more <laughs> if you have a less enjoyable job. I don't think that's going kind to of work at HSBC though.
0: <laughs> um, fantastic. I'm I'm really sorry I know there's lots of people who want to ask questions but I'm conscious of time and people who need to get away. Um, just before we go I just want to thank all of you for coming tonight I think it's been really useful and an um, and, and interesting discussion um, and just to say that as well as the book signing um, that I mentioned earlier there's also a wine reception outside uh, so please do have a drink and continue the conversation with us but Otherwise, thank you so much for uh, for coming and, and enjoying tonight. Thank you. thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at
2: another LSE event soon.